Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Current and Emerging Roles of Immunotherapy and ADCs for Patients with Non-Muscle Invasive and Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer, is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Immunotherapy and antibody drug conjugates have transformed the management of metastatic urothelial carcinoma. So how can we best utilize these treatment options to improve outcomes for our patients with advanced urothelial carcinoma? This is CME on ReachMD, and I'm Monka Parikh. And here with me today, I'm lucky to have Dr. Daniel Petrolak. Good afternoon. Hi. So let's get started. Dr. Petrolak, to set the stage for this chapterized course, what can you tell us about current and emerging roles for antibody drug conjugates or ADCs in this setting? So there are two ADCs that are FDA approved for metastatic urothelial carcinoma, infortimabidotin as well as sasituzumab gobatecan. So I'd like to review the data that led to the approval of these agents for the different clinical situations in urothelial carcinoma. Firstly, from the EV201 trial, there were two different cohorts. Cohort one included those patients who had prior immune therapy and who had prior chemotherapy for metastatic disease. Infortimabidotin was administered at 1.25 milligrams per kilogram on days 1, 8, and 15 of a 28-day cycle. And patients were then treated until toxicity or progression. The objective response rate in the EV201 trial was 44%, which led to the accelerated approval of infortimabidotin in this group of patients. The EV301 trial confirmed the observation that infortimabidotin is active in this group of patients, and infortimab was randomized against dealer's choice chemotherapy, which included taxanes in the United States or vinflunine in Europe, and a survival benefit was demonstrated for these patients. So that led to the full approval of infortimabidotin. A second cohort of EV201 were those patients who were platinum ineligible who had received a prior checkpoint treatment. And in this group of patients, Fortimabidotin was administered the same schedule, and objective response rate of 52% was observed. So that also led to an approval in this particular cohort of patients. Sastuzumab govitecan is also FDA approved for those patients who have metastatic urothelial carcinoma and who've progressed after platinum-based therapy or anti-PD-01-based therapies. So sastuzumab is given on a day one, day eight schedule at 10 milligrams per kilogram. And in the TROPHY-1 trial, which was very, very similar in design to the EV-201 study, it was found that the response rate was approximately 30%, and the side effects with sastuzumab included diarrhea as well as neutropenia. So I think one of the most exciting areas in research, in checkpoint therapy, as well as in ADCs, is the combination of checkpoints along with an ADC. And Data has been presented from the EV103 trial, both cohort A, which has now been published in JCO, as well as cohort K, which was presented at the ESMO meeting this year. In these cohorts, infortimabidotin was combined with pembrolizumab. A different schedule was used. Infortimab was administered at 1.25 milligrams per kilogram on days one and day eight, and pembrolizumab given at 200 milligrams on day one of a given cycle. And the data, I think, is incredibly exciting. As we look at the data from cohort A, 93% of patients had a tumor reduction, whereas 73% had a confirmed objective response. 
And this was seen irrespective of PDL1 status. What's really exciting here is the median survival. Now, of course, this is phase one slash phase two data. And the median survival that's been reported is 26.1 months with a median follow-up of about 25 months overall. That really is significantly different than what we've seen with any combination, both in platinum ineligible or cisplatinum ineligible, as well as platinum eligible patients. Cohort K was designed to confirm previous observations, both with infortimab adotin as a single agent, as well as infortimab combined with pembrolizumab. It was a non-comparative trial. And this looked at two different groups of patients, again, that were cisplatinum ineligible. And the response rates were impressive. EV monotherapy demonstrated a 45% response rate, whereas EV and Pembro had a 64% response rate. Again, the same pattern was seen in terms of PDL1 status. The responses were not dependent upon PDL1 overall. And the duration of response, the median has not yet been reached. It's 65% of responders were still responding at 12 months. And the data is not yet mature in terms of overall survival and progression-free survival. But the question, of course, is, well, we'll parallel what we saw in cohort A. Most importantly, there's a randomized trial, EV302, which is randomizing EV plus Pembro against standard of care chemotherapy for both cisplatin eligible as well as ineligible patients. So that will hopefully give us the answers to whether this combination has a better survival than standard of care chemotherapy. Okay, great. So let me turn now to some patient factors and strategies for the management of adverse events that come with these ADCs. And there are special considerations for each of the ADCs that you just mentioned, Dr. Petrolak. So for infortimab vidotin, we do see an increase in peripheral neuropathy, hypoglycemia, and skin toxicity. So we do need to take special care in patients that have a history of diabetes or have underlying peripheral neuropathy. And in some cases, dose reductions or interruptions are required due to that toxicity. Sasituzumab govotecan has a different safety profile and adverse events that we see with sasituzumab govotecan involve GI toxicity, including diarrhea and neutropenia or febrile neutropenia is also seen. So we do need to consider GCSF support for patients that have neutropenia and consider supportive anti-motility agents for patients with diarrhea or GI toxicity. And again, sometimes dose reductions or interruptions are required. So I think these are very promising antibody drug conjugates. As Dr. Petrolak mentioned, they are approved for use for metastatic urothelial carcinoma. And there are a lot of promising combinations that are being studied as well. So to continue on, in Chapter 2, we'll be discussing how to determine which immune-oncologic agent is right for the patient in front of you. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. We were just talking about approved antibody drug conjugates and urothelial carcinoma. And now we're going to delve into treatment selection in metastatic disease. So Dr. Kapatrilak, can you talk about what steps we need to take to identify the right agent for the right patient with metastatic bladder cancer? So there are basically three clinical situations that we would consider a checkpoint inhibitor for metastatic urothelial carcinoma. The first situation I'd like to discuss are those patients who are ineligible to receive cisplatin-based chemotherapy. And this can include those patients with a creatinine clearance of less than 60, peripheral neuropathy, hearing loss as well as those patients who may not be able to tolerate hydration that's necessary for cisplatin-based chemotherapy. 
And there are two agents that are approved by the FDA in this particular situation. Those include atezolizumab as well as pembrolizumab. The second clinical situation where checkpoint therapy is approved is those patients who are responding to chemotherapy in the first lot. For those patients who have metastatic disease and have had chemotherapy as their first-line treatment, and that includes carboplatinum, gemcitabine, cisplatinum, gemcitabine, and MVAC, methotrexate, vinblastin, adriamycin, and cisplatinum. For this group of patients who respond, and that's defined as stable disease, a partial response, or complete response to therapy, Evalumab is FDA-approved as maintenance therapy. And the studies have demonstrated that there is a survival benefit for patients receiving Evalumab plus best supportive care versus best supportive care alone in responding patients. The third group of patients for which we have an approval by the FDA uh, for checkpoint inhibitors are those patients who received chemotherapy and have progressed on chemotherapy. And there are three FDA-approved drugs in that situation, nivolumab, evalumab, as well as pembrolizumab. And the only one that has level one evidence supporting its approval is pembrolizumab, where survival benefit was demonstrated compared to standard of care chemotherapy in the second line in those patients who received initially chemotherapy for metastatic disease. So one of the questions that I'm often asked about the sequencing of treatments for metastatic urothelial carcinoma comes in those patients who are first line and who are cisplatinum ineligible. In a patient who has pd one positivity, should we be giving carboplatinum gemcitabine and then giving maintenance therapy to the responding patient, or should we give a checkpoint therapy up front and then go forth with other forms of treatment afterwards? Well, pd one positivity is clearly one factor in deciding what to do first, but I also like to assess how rapidly a patient's disease is progressing. If a patient has visceral disease or needs their disease to get under control rapidly, I often will give chemotherapy first, irrespective of the pdl one status. Get the disease under control. If those patients respond, then give checkpoint therapy as maintenance treatment. And of course, if those patients progress, one could give a checkpoint as a second-line agent. So there are two ways to handle that patient who is cisplatinum ineligible, and I like to use disease aggressiveness or the speed at which the disease is progressing as a measure of how we should select our treatment. So there's interesting takeaways from everything that Dr. Petrolak just mentioned. Interestingly, PDL1 status is most relevant in patients that are cisplatin ineligible when considering immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. But as Dr. Petrolak mentioned, disease burden is also an important consideration in considering the first treatment that a patient should receive. In Chapter 3, we'll be discussing the current status of adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy for muscle-invasive bladder cancer and how that affects the setting of metastatic disease. Stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Mamta Parikh, and here with me today is Dr. Daniel Petrolak. We're discussing current and emerging roles of immunotherapy and ADCs for patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Welcome back. After discussing treatment selection in the setting of metastatic bladder cancer, we'll shift gears and talk a bit about adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy for patients with localized disease. I'll start by discussing the clinical practice guidelines for adjuvant immunotherapy for bladder cancer. And this is based on the results of the Checkmate 274 study, which evaluated nivolumab given for one year compared to placebo given for one year in the adjuvant setting in patients who had undergone a cystectomy or nephroureterectomy. 
If no neoadjuvant chemotherapy was given, patients with PT3 or higher disease or node-positive disease were considered eligible for nivolumab. Or if patients had neoadjuvant cisplatin chemotherapy, patients that had pathologic stage T2 or higher or node-positive disease on their cystectomous specimens were considered for the study. And this study showed a clear disease-free survival benefit for nivolumab compared to placebo in the intention-to-treat population. So Dr. Petrolak, can you talk about emerging neoadjuvant and adjuvant immunotherapy strategies that are coming our way? Well, I think there's some very, very interesting strategies that are now emerging in neoadjuvant and adjuvant settings. And the thought is, is to move the checkpoint therapy as well as some of the targeted therapies up front in the treatment of these diseases. So there are trials that are looking at the combination of infortimab plus pembrolizumab as neoadjuvant therapy. There are trials that are looking at chemotherapy combined with checkpoint therapy as neoadjuvant therapy. Also, one of the problems, of course, with neoadjuvant therapy is about 30% of patients are not eligible to receive cisplatin, and these patients go on to cystectomy without receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So we actually presented some data back at the ASCO-GU meeting earlier this year, looking at infortimabidotin as a single agent in patients who are platinum ineligible or cisplatinum ineligible. And we found that there was about a 36% complete response rate in these patients, which parallels what we see with neoadjuvant therapy with cisplatinum-based regimens. So all of these treatments and combinations are beginning to move up front earlier. And that, of course, is going to present a dilemma later on if these patients do relapse as to what should be done with these patients. And should you repeat checkpoint therapy? Should you repeat some of the agents that you've used in the neoadjuvant setting? I think that's going to lead to some very, very interesting clinical trials in the future. So I think it's very interesting that we're moving these agents up earlier, and not only in the neoadjuvant setting, but in the adjuvant as well as the setting of maintenance therapy. In EV103, there was a cohort that looked at neoadjuvant therapy for those patients who are cisplatinum ineligible, and a different dosage of infortimab was administered it was Fortimab at 1.25 milligrams per kilogram on day one and day eight of a 21-day cycle. So that's a little bit different than the approved indication for metastatic disease. But nonetheless, this was given for three cycles prior to cystectomy. And what we found was is that 36% of patients had a complete response. This is comparable to what we see with cisplatin-based chemotherapy. There are trials that are now looking at the combination of infortimab plus pembrolizumab in the neoadjuvant setting, and that's being randomized against standard of care chemotherapy. So the question, of course, is going to be, how do we manage the neuropathy? And that's why it's so important that we have a good concept of stopping early if patients have, or at least reducing dose or holding dosages if patients do develop neuropathy, because we're looking at a long-term picture in these particular patients, which is a little bit different than those patients with metastatic disease. There are trials that are now also looking at adding other agents to checkpoint in the maintenance setting. One of the Cropper groups is looking at the combination of Avelumab plus cabozantinib and comparing that to Avelumab alone as maintenance therapy to determine, of course, if adding more treatment in this clinical situation is going to improve the overall survival. Remember, we have about a 27-month median survival of Avelumab alone in this group of patients. Another trial is looking at sasituzumab govotecan combined with cisplatinum as initial therapy for those patients with metastatic disease 
and then giving checkpoint therapy plus sasituzumab as maintenance for those patients who respond. So we're moving these checkpoints up earlier, as well as some of the targeted agents. And I think it's going to ask, at least have us think about different clinical questions in the future. How do we sequence these drugs in the best fashion? Do we repeat drugs that have been used in the neoadjuvant adjuvant setting? And then uh, if these patients relapse past a year from their treatment. So I think there are going to be a lot of interesting clinical trials about the reapplication of checkpoints, about the toxicities of these drugs given earlier, and how this will also affect the overall picture of not only muscle invasive bladder cancer, but metastatic disease. So I think what we're hearing from Dr. Pedralak is that this field is extremely dynamic and that things are changing in a lot of novel combinations in the neoadjuvant setting, the maintenance setting in metastatic disease, and the adjuvant setting. So there will be a lot coming our way in the years to come. In Chapter 4, we'll be discussing regional issues in the testing and treatment of bladder cancer. Stay tuned. Welcome back. After discussing adjuvant and neoadjuvant therapy for muscle-invasive bladder cancer, let's turn now to regional considerations for testing and treatment. Dr. Petrolek, what are some regional challenges clinicians face when implementing treatment for bladder cancer, both within the U.S. and outside of the U.S.? I think there are several different factors that come into play in terms of the overall care of patients. I think the most important in the United States is a multidisciplinary team approach. So for example, in the neoadjuvant setting, it's been disappointing the number of patients, despite positive data, that have received neoadjuvant chemotherapy or perioperative chemotherapy. And in some studies, it's as low as 20%. That number, I think, is increasing. And I think we need to make sure that both the urologists and oncologists are aware that neoadjuvant therapy improves survival and that this can be administered safely to our patients. The other group, of course, I think that is important to note are those patients who are cisplatinum ineligible. In the past, those patients have gone on directly to cystectomy. And now that we have clinical trials for these patients, both with checkpoints as well as with combination therapy, it's important that the urologists know and to refer those patients to oncology. For example, in the Southwest Oncology Group, we're now looking at a trial of checkpoint therapy plus carboplatinum and gemcitabine in those patients who are platinum ineligible. It's a randomized study, but it's a study that does need to be performed to help determine whether the early chemotherapy in this group of patients will improve survival. I think also one of the important factors in the United States is making sure these patients are tested for biomarkers, particularly FGF. As we know, about 10% of patients express FGF, and there are drugs that target FGF, such as ertafitinib, which are FDA-approved for those patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma, both in the platinum ineligible and in those patients with prior chemotherapy. So I think that communication is the key. A team approaches the key to making sure that our patients get the best possible care. Now, one of the issues outside of the United States, of course, is drug access and drug availability. Not all of these agents are approved in different geographic regions. So what I encourage the patients in those countries is to speak to their physicians about clinical trials that may benefit the patient in this particular situation, or at least give them access to some of the newer drugs. So I think that we've come a long way in the treatment of urothelial carcinoma. Think back to 2013, where we really had no FDA-approved agents in the second line. And then around 2016, 2017, we started seeing approvals of the checkpoints. And then more recently in Fortimavidotin, Sasituzumab, and Ertifitinib. 
So we have many more treatments available for our patients. We're seeing responses and long-term responses within fortimabidotin in visceral disease. And these are things I've never seen before. So clinical trials, communication, these are key and important to taking care of our patients. Yes, it's been fascinating to watch the field evolve in the treatment of bladder cancer in the last several years. And to summarize, as you mentioned, a multidisciplinary approach is critical in treating patients both with localized disease as well as advanced disease and participation in clinical trials may be critical for patients, especially those outside of the United States. And let's not forget the radiation oncologists as well, because they are looking at bladder preservation techniques with radiation therapy, chemotherapy, and immune therapy. And there are national clinical trials that are underway to ask these questions, what the proper sequencing and what the roles are of immunotherapy in these patients. So again, I think it's important that you have a good team of physicians behind you to help take care of you. Absolutely. Did not mean to short shift the radiation oncologists. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you, Dr. Petrolak, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash innovations in oncology. Thank you for listening.